Well, it isn't over yet. We're still in the process of moving halfway across the country, so we're going to ask one more week for your indulgence while we revisit an episode from the past, actually uh, a long time ago, on a topic that has particular relevance for us right now as we go through one of the most significant changes we've been through since our kids were born. I'm Emily Morgan. And I'm Mike Morgan. And in this episode of The Grand Life, we're going to talk about an episode that we did called Remembering and Forgetting. And, you know, it is really apropos, like Mike said, because we are in a in a strange place where uh, I can't remember anything and I'd like to forget everything. Well, why is it so hard to remember things right now? Well, I mean, if you listen to the episode, they talk about how hard it is because your short-term memory under stress. When you're under stress and you're older, your short-term memory gets really bad. So, of course, you start forgetting and all so the, sorts of things. The stress of all this packing and scheduling and moving and working with banks and working with mortgage uh, companies and, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's crazy. It's all it's all just nuts. So, um, I don't feel so bad because it's nice to know that this is actually normal when you're under a lot of stress. So I hope whatever you're in, whatever situation you're in, when you listen to these uh, interviews, it will give you some kind of encouragement. Sometimes when I'm having a hard time falling asleep at night, I take tours in my head of childhood places. I guess you could call it virtual sleepwalking. I wander through my grandparents' house or step into the cottage at the Bay in New Hampshire or head on over to my elementary school classroom. I do a lot of remembering. Maybe I'm trying to make up for all the forgetting that I seem to be doing these days, leaving the clothes in the washer long after the cycle is done, trying to find the cap to a bottle I just put down somewhere close. It has to be close, right? I just unscrewed the top. Searching for my glasses that are sometimes on the top of my head. Or, most embarrassing of all, a short lapse of memory when I'm looking straight at a grandchild and for the life of me cannot remember her name. I know I am not alone in this, so today I talk to a neurologist and to a psychologist about why our brain works the way it works, or doesn't work, depending on what we're talking about, and then what hope we can find in the science behind aging. My first guest, Dr. Jared Brosh, is a behavioral neurologist. It's a subtype of neurology that focuses on cognitive health. Uh, dementia managing individuals who are dealing with neurodegenerative disease, but also individuals who have suffered from other brain maladies such as concussion and so forth that affects their day-to-day cognitive abilities. I had a few questions I wanted to ask him about how our brain is wired regarding remembering and forgetting. I know that I learned about the brain in high school, but for the life of me, I cannot remember much about what I learned. I do remember a few terms, prefrontal cortex, cerebellum, hypothalamus, amygdala, and hippocampus. But I had to ask Dr. Brosh to remind me of what some of those parts of the brain do in regards to memory. Memory is really separated into a bunch of different categories. We have working memory, like when we try to remember a telephone number from someone, we want to punch it into our iPhones. And that's really done by what's called the prefrontal cortex. So the the very foremost part of our brain right behind the forehead manages that kind of information. Uh, Then we have what's called explicit memory. So this is 
trying to remember something that happened in our day-to-day -day life, like uh, what did I have for breakfast today? What color were her shoes at my, on my date last night? And also trying to remember facts and figures. And, and this is done through what's called the hippocampus, which is a really important area, particularly when we're talking about things like Alzheimer's disease and whatnot. And the hippocampus encodes this sort of information and then distributes it through uh, the surrounding structures into the big frontal part of our brain, also known as the neocortex. So memories really get spread out throughout the big massive part of our brain, but it's the distribution point is this hippocampus. So that's, that's a really important part. And then there's one more kind of memory called implicit memory, which is like remembering how to do a specific skill or task. And that's stored in a completely separate motor area in the brainstem. So as he explains it, memory is stored in the frontal cortex. It's really a permanent memory storage area. And we think that day to day as we're learning things and at night, we kind of send all of that important information that's in this hippocampus area up into the long-term storage in the frontal cortex. And we can access that stuff uh, for, for long periods of time. Our brain isn't so different from a hard drive whose memory reaches capacity at a certain point. We really only can remember so many things really, really well. And, and we may have to move other pieces of information out of long-term storage to make room for new things. So I don't feel so bad about forgetting a grandchild's name. It's not easy to add that in, and sometimes something else has to go. I often wish I could forget things that I really don't want to remember, like the time in third grade that a group of my friends made fun of a scarf I was wearing as we walked home from school. I'd be happy to exchange that memory for the quick recall of a grandchild's name. Unfortunately, that memory of the scarf incident carries with it some emotional weight, so it stays, even when I'd like it to disappear. Memories that have a stronger emotional weight, which is placed on there through this part of the brain called the amygdala is how we sort memories and prioritize them. And memories that are, have a more of an emotional impact on us, they stay longer. You might remember something because it had more of an emotional impact on you and somebody else, it might've just been commonplace and they forgot it. As you might have experienced, while our long-term memory lasts, our short-term memories do not. As we age, we naturally lose some of these brain cells through a process called attrition or atrophy. And, and as a part of that process, we become more susceptible to uh, distraction. So if we're, if we're stressed out, if we're trying to multitask, if we didn't get good sleep the night before, it's much harder for us to, to form these confluent memories and to be able to access things very quickly. So, so that's a big part of the aging process and its impact on this ability to remember like where we left our phone or our iPad or things like that. So, so that's one part. Another part is you know, as we learn more and more about certain conditions like Alzheimer's disease, we know that these areas of the brain, the hippocampus, that short-term memory storage area is the first place to get affected. So we always worry about that uh, a little bit more in people as we age, just trying to sort out what is normal and what is not normal and should we be more concerned. The good news is that through research, it has been found that in people that have significant seizure disorders will remove part of their brain. We remove the temporal lobe, which houses this thing, the hippocampus and everything else. 
and you can remove one side of the brain uh, and you can still use the other side to form new memories. So there really is this bilateral involvement. And as we study these people who have had portions of their brain removed as they age, we're, we're finding that there is a lot of plasticity. There is a lot of ability to shift from side to side and to be able to use both sides of the brain in conjunction. That bilateral use of the brain is an idea we continue with as I speak with our next guest, Dr. Francine Toder. Dr. Toder is a retired clinical psychologist and the author of several books, including The Vintage Years. She has also blogged for Psychology Today, Thrive Global, Next Avenue, and The Huffington Post. Dr. Francine Toder, it's wonderful to have you here on The Grand Life. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Emily, for having me. Dr. Toder and I started right in talking about her book, The Vintage Years, a book that suggests that the fine arts may be the best way to stimulate the brain and enhance well-being past 60, according to recent neuroscience research. I asked her first about the title. I don't like most of the ways of referring to people over 60. I think they're pejorative. I think they reek of ageism. I think they imply things that aren't valid for the typical over 60 person today who is quite healthy and robust and energetic and intelligent and aware. Uh, so uh, my husband and I were brainstorming and I, I kept thinking, well, what's a good analogy? And I thought of vintage because it really describes um, a, a quality in something that is enhanced with age. Mm. And so I thought about a good wine, good cheeses, you know, the things you think about when you think of vintage that are enhanced with age, because really, I think people are enhanced with age. People over 60 are psychologically as a group healthier than any other time in their lives. I, a lot of people don't realize that. No, I agree. And of course, as I've gotten into that age group, I've started recognizing what we've been saying about them as if they they are decreasing in health and decreasing in, you know, abilities and all that. You know, you obviously, from your book, are a practitioner of the things you write about, given that you both write books and you picked up the cello in your later years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm a psychologist. I see myself that way. And the others are add-ons. But here's the thing. 50 years ago, when I was in graduate school, I remember learning about developmental stages in life. And most of the developmental theories go to about age 40. And then after that, there, there's no reference to development. And that's because um, people didn't live that long, 50, 100 years ago. And so developmental psychologists didn't bother writing about that stage of life. When I learned about the brain in graduate school, I learned that neuronal production took place till about the age of 30. And then it was a kind of slippery slope from there to the end. And so it was irrelevant to me when I was 30. But 50 years later, well, 40 years later, when I got ready to retire, when I was about 70, um, I thought, well, this can't still be the case. And it was a, it was a very bleak prospect. <laughs> And now it was relevant sure. to me. So I started to do some research about the brain and what takes place in the later years that might be positive rather than negative. I was looking for the glass half full. Sure. So I, I, I had been writing since I was in my 40s. And uh, 
So this is my was my third book that became The Vintage Years. And uh, it was my attempt to understand and to communicate to people about how the brain changes, not in negative ways, not in doom and gloom ways, but actually in healthy, positive ways, and how we can maintain brain vitality till the end of our lives. Even if we're, you know, our, our bones aren't perfect and our muscles aren't like they were and our vision is not as it was, but our brains can maintain their uh, vitality till the end. So that was what I was interested in. One of the things I found out is that music, playing an instrument or other kind of artistic um, pursuits are really good for the brain. And that's when I decided, well, I'd always been interested in the cello, never had time for it. And that's another whole thing about not having time through much of life. I decided I would try it then and then look for for evidence of, you know, older people taking up a musical instrument later in life. So you're writing your book about the vintage years. Did that come before or after you picked up the cello or was it kind of intermingled? It was, it was about the same time when I decided to retire, I decided I would try to uh, do something that was good for my brain. And then I started doing research and realized I had some ideas about things I could write about, but I also wanted to do something personal And that meant taking up an instrument. So I dragged my husband to San Francisco and we went into this into this store that's that rents uh, musical instruments. And I looked around and I I really wasn't serious, but I wound up coming home with a a cello. That's a pretty big instrument. And and a bow. (laughs) (laughs) And the only thing is I couldn't read music. So that's a whole adventure that started uh, roughly when I was, you know, 70, 71. Yeah, yeah. And in your book, you have uh, other examples of people picking up instruments at very uh, advanced stages. Oh, absolutely. People who were in their 80s. And the oldest person who I interviewed was a a gentleman in in New Jersey who was 96 when I interviewed him. And uh, he both taught himself how to play the organ, which isn't why I went to visit him and interview him. He was a wood sculptor who didn't start doing his his art form until he was 65. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about the findings about the brain after 60. Were there things that surprised you about brains at that age? Well, I was pleasantly surprised because I was hoping that the things that I'd once learned were no longer true. And, and in fact, you know, now that people live longer, there was more interest in finding out how healthy older brains work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting about the brain um, after 60 is that the right and left hemisphere become better integrated, more interdependent, and more functionally intertwined, which means that before the age of 60, in in your early development, people are either more right-brained or more left-brained, but the two the two lobes don't really talk to each other. Mm-hmm. They're connected, but they don't really talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in later in life, uh, we do have access through the right brain and things get stored in the left brain. And so there are ways in which if older than 60, we have the two sides of our brain cooperating in ways that really didn't happen before. So in some ways, there are some assets, not just liabilities. Yeah, I found that very motivating because it makes me want to take up the piano again. 
I mean, one of the hardest parts of playing the piano for me was the left brain part, like the yeah. rhythms and the having to work things together, like theory, the theory part yes, of it. And, right. and composers like Bach, who required that theoretical understanding, it just, mm-hmm. it really made it difficult for me. And I wonder now, you think I might have an easier time if some of that left brain stuff, if I started taking it back up? Well, here's the thing. I don't know if you'd have an easier time, but you have abilities now at 60 that you couldn't have had any other point in your life because the pace of life is a little slower when you get to 60 because Mm -hmm. your hormones are steadier. There's actually a decrease in testosterone and estrogen, which helps you be calmer. Mm. Um, There's um, a certain uh, emotional stability that takes place later in life. Your focus is more laser sharp than it was, you know, there were all kinds of distractions at other stages in life. Yeah. Uh, There's more flexibility in your time, even if you still work or if you still have responsibility for parents or children or grandchildren, you you have generally more flexibility in your time and there are fewer demands on your time. Yeah. Uh, And then there's one other thing that's really important and there's a certain time urgency. There's an awareness of mortality at this stage of life, which motivates you because you say to yourself, it's now or never. Yeah, yeah. If I don't do it now, it isn't going to happen. And as a kid, you you don't have a sense of time. And as a young adult, you don't have a sense of time. So there's no urgency to to say, I'm going to sit and I'm going to practice because if I don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Now, let me go back a little bit. We were talking about music, and you concentrate in your book mostly on the arts as a tool to keep our brains active and growing. Yeah. And music seems to be a big part of that, although you do talk about other kinds of arts. You mentioned that music mm-hmm. and emotion, I'm quoting here, music and emotion is very strong and learned early in life. And yet, and that's an unquote, and yet a lot of us leave that behind pretty early. Why is that? I mean, a lot of us have music and are exposed to music when we're little or when we are in elementary school, but then we kind of let it go. Well, humans are an inherently creative species from the time we're born. If you watch even a one-year-old and you put on some music, you see they begin to move to the music. Music talent is there early on. The problem is, unless you're early identified as gifted, Mm -hmm. as an artist, as a musician, as a storyteller, which later becomes a writer, you don't get the support that you need. You have a parent telling you, um, I want you to major in economics because you'll starve to death as an artist Mm -hmm. Uh, or artist, writer, musician, you know, basket weaver, you know, whatever, whatever your your choice of the arts is. Uh, so there's a lot of discouragement in this country. Now, there are other parts of the world where where children are encouraged and there's financial support and psychological, emotional support available to them. And they, they, they just bloom better. Interesting. In our society, Western society, um, we, we don't do that very well. In fact, one of the people who I acknowledged in the book is a famous musician who was a cellist in the Emerson String Quartet, I told him about this early identified as gifted, and he said, I was. He said, uh, by the, when I was seven or eight years old, people could see I had talent. My parents were musicians. Um, I was given the opportunity, and, you know, I mean, obviously he had talent. 
and the idea of talent is irrelevant at this stage of life. I need to say everyone I've ever talked to who was a, a late starting artist told me I have no talent. And I said, fine, that isn't one of the things you need to have. Um, you need to have perseverance. You need to have curiosity. And by the way, humans are very curious and older humans are particularly curious because they have the time and space to be that way. You know, I loved your section on the, of the book where you interview a lot of people who have added in a new hobby or career later in life. And it seemed to me that a lot of the changes were precipitated by big life changes, like the death of a loved one or a move or retirement. What is it about a life change that opens up things for people that they wouldn't have considered before? Change is a precipitant because it shakes up the patterns. We're really patterned people. We just do things. It's easier. The human brain doesn't want to have to think continuously of what am I doing next. So we have patterns to make life easier. Yeah. When the patterns get shaken up, you take time out. You go, whoa, now what? Yeah. 60 is probably the first time in life where you have enough space to actually think about, oh, what do I do now? Yeah. So uh, whether it's change or whether it's just age that leads to the opening up of, of new possibilities, which for some people is very exciting and other people it's terrifying. Yeah. So change can, can act in different ways. But, but yes, change is the impetus for making a decision about what I'm going to do next. Francine, thank you for writing a book that defies ageism and encourages us to grow and keep evolving into more creative and more curious human beings. I, I just love the whole concept. And it was wonderful to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Clearly, our brains are changing as we age, sometimes for the better and sometimes not. The key seems to be taking advantage of what we can do to optimize our aging. So I guess one of the ways we're optimizing our aging is we are changing it up. And that is supposed to actually help us. But right now it doesn't feel like a lot of help. It just feels like you want to yell for help. Please help me. <laughs> Back this box. And <laughs> do this. <laughs> Call this utility company. Yeah, it's just a lot. Forward my mail. Not that we want to whine and complain about it. Seriously, we're really grateful that we can move to a place where our, some of our other grandchildren are. Um, but I know many of the listeners, all many of you have done this before. And I think if I've learned anything, we will pay for somebody to pack our house up. <laughs> Because this has been stressful. What I've learned is that everyone who's talked to us and has already been through what we're now going through says it was a great idea. Yeah. Once it's over. <laughs> well, yeah, they're, they're not that specific about it. Yeah. But, but I'm just going to go with that. They said it was a great idea. Yeah. So we are, <laughs> we are almost done and we're very happy about that. And we're going to stay happy if it kills us. <laughs> <laughs> it won't kill us. Just make us stronger. Yes. That's what we just learned. Right. In the meantime, I'm Emily Morgan. And I'm Mike Morgan. And thank you for joining us in living the grand life. 